You know, it feels like the society is going crazy, don't, doesn't it? There may have been a time like 50, 100 years ago where uh, the word of God would have purchase, where, where even kings or leaders or people would listen to what God has to say for the, for the people around them. In fact, uh, there have been instances in history where uh, the leaders of a country would say, let's have a time of repentance and prayer. Let's turn away from our evil and pray that God would help us out. That is not today. No, instead, the governments have figured that they have power and so they use it to benefit themselves and the people around them. They think that they are doing good things by invading other places and forcing them to do what they feel is right. Governments use their own people and force their own people to do things that are against their conscience. It is a terrible time. And that was the time of Nahum chapter two, seventh century BC, the kingdom of Assyria and its capital, Nineveh. What, uh, did you think I was talking about another country? You might have, because the fact is, this is part of the human condition, it seems. We get this experience of goodness, of the glory of God working among us. For Nineveh, it happened when Jonah came to them, and Jonah, the most reluctant prophet in the Bible, bar none, manages to convert an entire city to following God. That city was Nineveh. But that was 100 years ago. And you see, as things happen in, in, in these places, you can end up focusing so much on the way we're good and we're godly and we're powerful and God has been kind to us, and then we start focusing on how much power we have and how great things are for us, and then we kind of let the God thing fall off to the wayside here, fall off at the back end. And we focus on how powerful and great and mighty we are. And we to look at our riches and the things that God has given us and we think, wow, this is stuff that we deserve. And then if anybody has the audacity to say that maybe you should give up some of the awesomeness you have, well, then we get very angry. That is the situation you see with Nineveh. And I think that answers at least one of the two questions, because I have two really big questions when I read Nineveh, or Nahum chapter two. The first question is, how has Nineveh gone so far? And the second que question, and a related question that I, I know is coming to me because I am a rich Western white guy who has lots of power and authority and stuff like that. Why is God so mad? I asked that question. Because th there's nothing here about God being, you know, calm and sedate and accepting in Nahum chapter 2. There is very little of comfort listed here. 
God is angry, and he's saying, he's promising, he's even using the past tense to talk about it, that he is going to bring about what needs to happen. He is going to bring about his vengeance on a people who are rebellious to him. Not only rebellious to him, but if you look at verse two, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. He's saying that because Nineveh has already destroyed Israel. They're about to, well, they wanted to destroy Judah. They had done horrible things to the people of Israel. That's, by the way, why Jonah really, really didn't want to prophesy to Nineveh. Because he really hated Nineveh. Nineveh had done horrible things to his people. And yet here we see God being angry because the people of God had been maligned. Now, God was using Nineveh and Assyria to do this. But make no mistake, evil is still evil. When you intend bad things for people, then God will be mad at you for it. But how did they get here? How in the name of all things holy does a people who heard directly from God, they actually had a guy spit up from a fish on their shores who then came to them and said, this is the word of the God. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown, he said. And then the entire city decides from the highest, to the, from the greatest to the lowest, repents. And they come, to save, they come to saving faith in God. And I mean saving faith in the sense that they were saved from the wrath of God directly. How do they go from that to within 100 years? Well, look at verse 12. Well, 11 and 12. Where's the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the, young, the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, worth none to disturb. This is, this is a, an image here. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. That's referring to the way that Nineveh had gone around to all the places around them, destroyed them, taken them over, and torn them to shreds. By the way, the Assyrian uh, idea was that in order to stop kingdoms from rising up against them, they'd simply take so many from one part and move them to over this part of the Assyrian Empire and take people from over here and move them back. So they tore up kingdoms and people groups and tore up families to try and make sure that they could stay in power. And that's what they're saying here in verses 11 and 12. How do they get from, I'm going to submit to God, to... I'm going to defeat everybody around me to, well, destroy everything. Well, it's a pretty simple situation, and we know it well. I kind of alluded to it already. There is a point at which we as humans, well, we have very short memories. We like to think we have long memories. I mean, there's people here who would say that they remember great things from their childhood and stuff. It's very small stuff and it's snippets. And to be honest with you, chances are really good you're misremembering some of the stuff you have from all of We have very short memories. How short? I've actually had counseling sessions with people who have seen miraculous healings in their own lives and are now really, really mad 
because God hasn't given them the wealth they felt they needed. They had a direct miracle happen in their lives. They know it was a direct miracle in their lives, but they've forgotten it because God hasn't given them what they want now. It happens when we, we believe that because God has given us benefits and blessings now, that the benefits and blessings we have can be used, well, to overwhelm others. That's what Nineveh did. I mean, we, we do this all the time. You see, salvation leads to complacency. Complacency leads to entitlement. Entitlement leads to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness leads to cruelty. Nineveh honestly believed that they were helping other countries. They were doing the right thing. By the way, minor point, everybody, uh, almost all evil in the world, the vast, vast majority of things that are evil that are in the world are not done by people who think that they're doing evil. It's usually done by people who think they're doing good. And that's what's happening here. That's how you move from understanding God, from knowing God, from loving God, to actually being in open rebellion to God. And worse than being in open rebellion to God, as you become self-righteous and you see other people as needing to give you stuff to make you happy, and you have the right to that, you begin to oppress them. You begin to force them to do the things that you want them to do because you have a right. And the worst part is, this is why God is mad. Because those people that we choose to oppress, those people that we ignore, those people that we, we don't deal with, God loves them. He created them in his image. So yeah, God is angry. That's why he says in verse 13, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots with smoke, and your, the sword shall devour you, your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. We don't like to think about the wrath of God. We like to imagine that God is kind of our booster, a, a person who exists simply to provide us with the things that we deserve. And we always usually say the things that we deserve in the sense of positive stuff. We don't mean it in the sense of negative stuff. But here's the thing. This isn't our world. We just live here. This is God's world. While we live right now in a situation where we can, we can oppose God, that is not the way it will always be. The fact is, God works all things together. For the good of those who love and serve the Lord and are called according to his purposes, but he works all things together. See, the danger that Nineveh had in Nahum chapter two is that they had actually forgotten who runs things. 
They had decided that God was unimportant in life, and so they had created their own God in their own image. Uh, probably Ishtar, by the way, if you look at verse 7, when it talks about its mistress is stripped, she's carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. That's probably a reference to the goddess of Ishtar that they would have probably believed in in that area during that period. Your false, the, and the false god gets overthrown. The false god gets destroyed because, again, God rules the world. He doesn't just rule the world in some far benighted future. He doesn't just uh, rule the world after the, after the end of time and the eschaton. You know, we can, we can debate Revelation later. He rules the world now. And he works things together now for his glory. But he is patient. He allows Nineveh to be used of him to punish his own people. Nineveh became arrogant about it. And it's interesting that they use the image of lions there in verses 10 and 11. Nineveh tended to use lions as a symbol of their own power. Uh, they would talk about uh, their, their ability to be ferocious to their enemies as them being like lions. Uh, the, their reliefs on the walls of Nineveh, it's in northern Iraq, by the way, if you, go, if you go there now, it's, it's, a, it's a heap of ruins, but you can see in places a relief of Ashurbanipal actually fighting lions to show that he can protect the people of Nineveh from the forces of chaos. And what God says here is that, no, Nineveh, you are the forces of chaos. You have tried to do things that you thought were right. You have tried to feed your people, but you've fed your people by overcoming and tearing and shredding the people around you and... I am going to destroy you. You see, opposition to God has an ending. This is the bad news that we have to all face at some level. The times that we choose to oppose God, the times that we choose to work against God, the times that we choose to ignore what God is saying to us in our lives will end. There is, will come a day that Jesus Christ will come in clouds of heaven and he will say enough and it will be. Brothers and sisters, rebellion ends. And there, is, there has never been a chance that the rebels to God would win. God rules all things. He reigns over all things. And we should know this. I mean, we have snippets of it in our own societies. Uh, I've heard this said a bunch of times, and I tend to use it myself sometimes. Reality is very cruel to people who ignore it. Well, the reality is there is a God. The reality is there is a God who has expectations for his people. They're explained here in the Word of God. There is a God who rules and reigns over all things and cares what happens in this world. And there is a God who cares about the people who are being oppressed now. And because of that case, well, evil will end. It just will. For Assyria, for Babylon, for Greece, for Rome, 
for the Japanese Empire in World War II, for the Nazis in for the Soviet Union. Any empire that rebels against God ends, period. It doesn't matter if they started out by accepting God or, or not. The question is whether or not you oppose God. Because to oppose God is to oppose reality. Remember, we are talking about the God who created all things, who at the beginning of time decided that he would speak into the darkness light and that there would be light. The God who would create us, who would create a good world, he rules all of it. He defines reality. And opposing reality is dangerous. Because we can't fight it. We have a word for those who, will, who willfully, completely, and unrepentantly ignore reality. That's called a delusion. Delusions end. Dreams end. And that is honestly the central point of Nahum chapter 2. But there is actually another group that's listed in Nahum chapter 2. I've already refer referred to the verse a couple of times. Don't know if you've noticed it. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. God has seen what has happened to Judah. God has seen it. God knows what's going on. And he has not forgotten. And he is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Not because Jacob and Israel are great things and able to do all of the things that has to happen, but God is working this way. Because God, <laughs> he destroys rebellion, but he lifts up those who turn to him. So, while the ending is going to be for the general population, it's going to be like verses 3 to 10. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruins. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Make no mistakes, brothers and sisters. If we live opposed to God, that is our end. No kingdom, no people, no group lasts long opposed to God. If God says it is enough, it will be. But there are, but God also redeems. 
And those are the only options. He, he redeems those who will, will trust in him, and he destroys those who will not. And there's good reason for that. Because if we will not actually deal with re reality, we will actually start to believe crazy things. If we don't believe in the true God, we create our own gods. And as we create our own gods, we come up with our own ideas about what is good and what is acceptable. And that, then we start enforcing those ideas of what is good and acceptable on other people. And that's, while we think that that's good, that's actually called oppression. And God does not do well with people who oppress his people because he loves them. And these are the only options we have. There are only two eventualities. You can agree with reality and follow God, or you can oppose reality and fight with God. I don't recommend the second option. I mean, heck, I, can beat a, I, I could beat some of you in arm wrestles, and God is a heck of a lot more powerful than I am. If I can beat you, goodness gracious, God is gonna take you out no problem. But those of you who've been reading this text will know something else about this. Jacob is not actually us. I, I don't think anybody here is Jewish. Are, are we Jewish? Don't think so. We weren't from the, from, the tribe of, uh, uh, from the tribes of Jacob, were we? We are not from Judah. So we're not actually the people of God, are we? Well, that's where I think it's very important that we remember what was preached last week. You remember my brother uh, Curtis was here last week standing exactly where I am right now? If you want, you can talk to him later about what he actually preached. But he did preach from Galatians chapter four. And Galatians chapter four, verses four to seven says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, even right now, even if you are presently living in open rebellion to God, right now, your rebellion can end now, before the punishments of God, before God finally says enough. You can end the rebellion right now. All you have to do is turn to Jesus. You see, it's Jesus who sent his spirit, into, uh, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, brothers and sisters, right now, this moment, we can repent and be reconciled to God. And if you repent and are reconciled to God, there's a second thing that we can remember, and this is that the world as it is will not be forever. It can be hard now to follow God in the, in the situations that we're in, because let's face it, the, the, the 
kingdoms that we live in, the countries that we live in here are not in favor of God. And so they will probably try to oppress those who follow God. But it won't be forever, brothers and sisters. We can trust that God will bring things to a right conclusion. But we need to trust in God now. You see, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not merely from just the negatives of this world, but from the very wrath of God itself. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, and we should be happy about that. Right now, as it stands, we can turn to God right now and be at the same level as the people of Judah, trusting in him and in him alone, knowing that God will redeem his people and that the oppositions that happened, well, the punishment was taken by Christ and we can be accepted. There's a famous phrase that go, goes, facts don't care about your feelings. And to be blunt about it, facts don't. But the truth does. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and the truth cares about how you feel and whether or not you are going to be trusting in him. So brothers and sisters, we need to trust in him. Where we're living lies, where we're living in opposition to God, we need to turn from those wickednesses and live. Just trust in Jesus. And where now the path is long and things sometimes feel difficult, trust in Jesus. The suffering is but for a moment and the time will end that the suffering happens. God will reconcile all things. And you see, that is actually what we're going to be celebrating today. You see, it's not a matter of basic opinion as to whether or not we're saved. It's not a matter of, uh, of my opinion as to whether or not Jesus took for himself the sins of the world. As we today eat the body and blood through the bread and the wine, commemorating the sacrifice that God gave for us, we know that Jesus said, this is this body is broken for you. This blood is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. And he who died for this new covenant rose again on the third day to tell us that this is fulfilled. So brothers and sisters, today, trust in Jesus. If you'll join me in prayer. Lord God, It's not easy to pre preach difficult texts, and I pray that this was useful to your people. I pray right now that where it wasn't, that you would be correcting my thoughts and the thoughts of your people to trust in you more readily. And I pray now that as we turn to the body and blood 
to the Lord's Supper that we would remember your sacrifice well and that ultimately we would not do, eat and drink unworthily, but we would trust that you still rule and reign over all things and that you can, we can trust you for all. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.